the trial of the nation of Israel had begun. The plaintiff, Jesus of Nazareth, has accused Israel's spiritual leadership of committing a grievous crime. The offense was more than their refusal to recognize him as the promised Messiah. It was their rejection of the Most High God who had revealed himself to them through the witness of Moses, the prophets, and the scriptures. Jesus had asked them, had they never read the scriptures? (laughs) Of course they had, but they had read it with hardened hearts and blinded eyes, lest they should understand what he was referring to. You see, the Lord pinpointed the scriptural passage that should have set the bells of recognition clanging in their heads. Recorded in Matthew 21, he quoted Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and is marvelous in our eyes. He then added, Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation or people, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Matthew quoted that in verses 42 and 40 through 44. It was no coincidence that the Lord used this familiar psalm to the Jewish people during the week of the Feast of Passover. For it was part of the Hallel, sung during the celebrations of three of Israel's feasts. The Hallel is our Psalms 113 through 118. Families sang it in their homes as part of the Passover meal. And they again sang it at the temple during the nation's observances of the Feast of Passover, and then later at the Feast of Pentecost, and finally in the autumn at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, without an understanding of the relationship between these feasts and the Lord's actions during this week, the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 can be totally misunderstood, resulting in an incorrect interpretation of end-time events. Hello, I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I'll be your instructor in this Internet Bible Institute class. You'll recall from our second class that the people had cried, Hosanna to the Son of David, and had cast palm branches before Jesus as as they welcomed him as their Messiah King. They did this as he rode into the city of Jerusalem during his triumphal entry. What needs to be pointed out is that the people incorrectly believed that this feast event was the fulfillment of the prophetic Feast of Tabernacles. Now they were correct with respect to the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles and its connection to the coming Messianic Kingdom. However, the triumphal entry was during the Passover week and the Feast of Tabernacles was not occurring at that time for the two feasts are almost half a year apart. In the excitement of the moment, the people overlooked this key fact. This triumphal entry of Jesus of Nazareth was significantly different from the processions that occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, at that feast, two priestly processions traveled from two pools of water named Siloam and Matzah, which are located in the Kidron Valley. The priests of each procession would carry a ceremonial pitcher of water on their shoulder as part of the ritual. The two processions would join at the water gate and proceed then to the temple altar. With three blasts of the trumpets and the waving of palm branches, the two pitchers of water, symbolizing the living water of eternal life, were poured out as the temple music played and the halal sang. At the singing, 
of Psalm 118. Yes, that's the same one sung at the triumphal entry. The people began to wave palms in jubilation and proclaim verse 1 of Psalm 118. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. The next three verses of the psalm serve to remind them that God provides salvation for the people, for the priesthood, and yes, for the Gentiles in verses 2 through 4. As they sang verses 25, their heartfelt pleas were for the Lord to save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. It was Jesus' response during the next verse of Psalm 118 as they sung it that troubled Israel's spiritual leaders on that Palm Sunday so long ago. For Jesus said, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which has showed us light. Every faithful worshiper knew these words by heart. In the excitement and emotion of the triumphal entry, the people had forgotten that it was Passover week and not the Feast of Tabernacles. Six months earlier, however, at the last Feast of Tabernacles, John the Apostle had recorded in chapter 7, verse 37-38, that the Lord had stirred similar emotions among the people on, as John said, the last day of that great day of the feast. For as the priests poured out the living water, Jesus called out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living waters. Many who were present at Jesus' triumphal entry, they, they must have remembered his invitation. And now at the Passover week, they were ready to respond. But recall that when the spiritual leadership heard this, they rejected the Lord. Being the Passover season, all would recall and sing Psalm 118 and quite possibly knew that Scripture was speaking of Israel's leadership in verse 12. For in that verse 12, when they would sing it, they sang of one, the Messiah, who would bring salvation. And, here this is crucial, who would destroy those who opposed him. For they would have sung, They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. These people had certainly heard their spiritual leaders incorrectly interpret this verse by applying it to the Roman oppressors. The general belief in Israel was that the Roman army was the bees that would be destroyed by the Messiah when he came. For verses 19 and 20 stated that the Messiah would come in righteousness to deliver the righteous. And climatically, the one doing this is described as the cornerstone of verse 22. Now the cornerstone of a building was laid at the beginning of construction and it became the starting point and from then on the reference point for all that followed as they constructed up the building. It established the pattern for the builders to conform to and assured the building's trueness horizontally and vertically. Now, if the builders ignored the corner, cornerstone or neglected to reference to it as the building would be going up and up and up, ultimately the building would be a failure. In the ancient world, it was a well-known and understood term, also applied to the key person who would lead a group of people. Isaiah applied it to the prince of Egypt in Isaiah 19, verse 13. In other words, the key leader would be considered the cornerstone. Clearly, at the triumphal entry, it was applied by all to Jesus of Nazareth. For the Messiah would certainly be the principal person of the promised millennial kingdom. 
for he would lead them to his kingdom. Everyone standing there could not have misunderstood that Jesus was applying this analogy to himself. The spiritual leaders well understood that he was condemning them, the builders, for rejecting him, the cornerstone. But not only were they rejecting him, they were also rejecting God the Father. You see, the test had come for the people. Did they really mean it when they sang the last verse of the Hallel at the feast? This is what they would have sang. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Thou art my God. I will exalt thee. We now move into the second phase of the trial, the presentation of the witnesses, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 22. Please turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22. Verse 1 begins with Jesus' response to the people, but even more pointedly to the chief priests and the Pharisees that we read about in Matthew 21. We read in verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables. The question in Matthew 21 that he is answering here in verse 1 was the question phrased in verse 23 of chapter 21, where the chief priests and the elders of the people asked, By what authority dost thou these things? And they added, and who gave thee this authority? So verse 1 is the Lord's beginning of his answer. We are told that he answered them with a parable. It's very important to understand what a parable is. Parables are used to reveal truths to those who have teachable hearts and spiritually attuned ears. The chief priests and the Pharisees who were present at that occasion, sadly did not. But his disciples did, and they remembered and recorded it for us in the Word. Yes, the Holy Spirit helped them to remember too, <laughs> unlike me, who was so hard to remember things. Okay, in Jesus' parable here of Matthew 22, we have the parable of the marriage feast. Now, he not only answers their question, but he brings forth the witnesses of history against the spiritual leaders of the people. These witnesses will testify of the spiritual leaders' rejection not only of Jesus as the Messiah, but also as God the Father who had sent him. In order to understand how the Lord used this parable, though, we need to turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, a familiar chapter with many parables. If you'll look in verse 34, all these things, all these parables that have just gone before in the chapter, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto him. Notice the next verse, 35. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. There's that familiar phrase that I said was so important in Matthew. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. You see, the reason he would do this is much greater than merely telling stories. 
For Jesus said, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. You see that? He used parables to reveal or to disclose new information about things that have been kept secret or were hidden from humanity until he came and revealed them through his parables. Until that point in time, only the triune God, that's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, had known these things. That is why the Lord said in Psalm chapter 78, verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. What are those things that were kept hidden before he came? Well, those things were concerning his plan and purpose for history, for Israel, and for the world, and for eternity, as well as his foreknowledge of men's responses and reactions to these things of God's plan. You see, if you are unfamiliar with the proper way to study and interpret our Lord's parables, you could come up with all kinds of wrong meanings. I would suggest that you look at our video on proper understanding and interpreting parables that's available on demand at our video channel. It is one of our short segments teaching on how to study aspects of the scriptures in the correct biblical way. You can find that at our website, congdenministries.org, and go to our video channel. When studying a parable, we must consider four essential elements. The circumstances surrounding the telling. The essential details of the parable and what they represent. The original hearer's mindset when they heard the parable. And then finally, what is the central truth of that parable? The circumstances of Jesus telling this parable of the marriage feast was the question posed by the religious leaders, which we have read and was recorded in Matthew 21. Now remember, this parable was proclaimed during the celebrations of the Passover week. All who were present when Jesus told this parable were attendees during that week. They had come from all over the empire to observe these events of the Passover. Those who were there hearing this uh, parable included the chief priests, the elders, Matthew 21, 20, verse 23, the feast attendees, Matthew 21, 46, the Pharisees, recorded in Matthew 21, 45, and of course the Lord's disciples. The Passover week celebrations began with families going to the temple area to buy their Passover lamb on the 10th day of the first day of the month. Now this is what they had just done when Jesus Christ presented himself as Messiah, as we read about in Matthew 21. We now call this event the Palm Sunday. Four days after that buying the lambs, or the triumphal entry, came the 14th day of the month. The Passover was then observed beginning at the evening. During that Passover day, the Lord was crucified and buried. Now, on the very next day, and this gets a little confusing, so listen carefully. On the very next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. That feast would last seven days. The first day would be a Sabbath with no work being done. And the last day of the feast would be a Sabbath. Now, during this day, this first Sabbath, when nobody could do any work or go anywhere or do anything, that was when the Lord's body lay in the tomb. Now, the next day, what would be the second day of the unleavened bread feast, was the first day of the week. Now, this is where it gets complex. That day is the start of a third feast. See that? Passover, feast one, 
Unleavened bread begins, feast two. Third day, the feast of first fruits begins. So you get three feasts right in a row sequentially each day. So what do we have? The feast of first fruits. Well, this is Christ's resurrection as recorded by Paul as the resurrection from the dead and Christ being the first fruit of that resurrection in Corinthians. You see, these three feasts are called the pilgrimage feast, actually, of unleavened bread. But most people, and even some of the biblical writers, lump all of the events together as the Passover. Now, I know this is a little confusing, and I do offer a book on the Feasts of the Lord that explains it in greater detail and makes it, I believe, very clear to understand and to see the significance of the feast. Just an aside, the book of John, the Gospel of John, is filled with allusions to the feasts, and you need to understand those feasts in order to really understand how it all fits together. The point I'm making is that this was a major event of the spring for those in Israel and for Jewish people all over the empire because under God's law, they all the males had to be in Jerusalem during this week. Every year they had to come. For all Jewish people, this was a spiritual event to remember the past, the Exodus. But it also taught of God's promise for the future. The Lord chose this time for Jesus of Nazareth's offer of himself as Messiah and King of Israel. During the three years of the Lord's public ministry, his popularity had been drawing increasingly greater attention and crowds. Therefore, people were eagerly clinging to every word he spoke of during that week. In fact, the religious leaders feared that if Jesus' popularity continued to, control, to grow, there, the chief priests and leaders, little kingdom and their mutually beneficial relationship with Rome would come to an end. For the general populace, they saw Jesus as the conquering king, bringing relief from Roman oppression, as John recorded in John chapter 12. They saw him as a healer of the sick and a provider of food. All wondered, was the kingdom about to begin? Luke tells us in chapter 17 and verse 20 that this was the very thought that was on the Pharisees' minds. And we certainly know that men like Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, came to the Lord to talk to him about it because they recognized how these events seemingly were coming together to fulfill prophecy. Now, for the disciples, remember, they had forsaken all to follow Jesus. And they anticipated serving him in his kingdom. Therefore, they too had certain expectations. Just two chapters back in Matthew 19, in verses 16 through 28, we read them asking about their future position in the kingdom. And Jesus Christ promised them that they were to rule on thrones beside him in his kingdom. They were going to be rulers in this new kingdom under the Messiah. For the, them, the moment of Jesus Christ's triumph meant for them their triumph. And it seemed only a hair breaths away. If we add to all these things the kingdom expectations that were supported by the teaching of many Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day, they taught that the advent of the Messiah would be celebrated by a feast that would usher in the kingdom of heaven. Read references to that are found in Exodus 24:11, Psalm 23:5, and Isaiah 25:6. For all but the hard-hearted leaders of Israel, this seemed to be the long-awaited moment of triumph for Israel. And they were there to see it with their eyes and to be part of it. Keeping these circumstances and the mindset of the hearers before us, 
Let us now look at the essential details of the parable and from that determine the central or main truth that the Lord offered to Israel that day. The Lord knew what was on their minds when he introduced his parable of the marriage feast. For a wedding was, and still is, a major highlight and a celebratory event in an individual's life. It was a life-changing event. For those involved, it was a time of rejoicing and included joyous feasts, similar to the rejoicing and joy of Passover with its feasts. Those familiar with the marriage customs of Israel immediately could relate to this parable. You see, a parable always begins with something familiar to its listeners and then brings the truths of the familiar alongside of a new or unfamiliar spiritual truth that the teller wants his listeners to understand. For the word parable actually means to bring alongside. In the Bible, the unfamiliar is brought alongside of the familiar as a means to teach a truth. If you look at Matthew chapter 22 and verse 2, we read, The Lord introduces the parable with, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. Immediately, we see that the parable will help us to understand the kingdom of heaven that was coming. As we learned in our previous class, the phrase the kingdom of heaven is better translated the kingdom from heaven. In this parable of the marriage feast, we find that Jesus used a story about a king arranging a marriage for his son. He did this in order to give an understanding about the kingdom that was coming from heaven. Now look at verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king, which made a marriage for a son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. As I explain in my class on parables, the essential details must be determined first. Here we have as essential details a king, a son, servants, a wedding, and the guests that wouldn't come. In Israel of Jesus' day, it was the groom's father that hosted the wedding. Now, there's a useful, interesting detail, but that's not essential in this term in verse 4. Again, he sent forth again other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. A better word for the Greek word ariston, dinner, that the translators rendered here dinner would be the word brunch. That's right. <laughs> a meal between breakfast and lunch. Brunch. For this was an early meal that was presented. Now this non-essential detail, but helpful detail, prevents us from confusing this parable and its brunch with the formal marriage supper of Revelation 19. There are two different words used in English as dinner, but brunch and formal dinner. We also need to know that Jewish wedding celebrations or feasts always took place over a number of days during which the guests were housed and fed by the host. Additionally, the host also provided festival garments for them. These are robes that are in glorious white, worn at the feasts and for weddings. Many that heard this parable would have known and understood also that the Feast of Tabernacles prefigured the consummation or the realization of the kingdom age. They could put that all together as they heard the parable. Therefore, they should have recognized that the feast in the parable represented events preceding the coming kingdom of heaven. Through this parable, the Lord also introduced the marriage aspect to his teaching about the kingdom. For the father of the parable is God the father. The son is God the son. 
Now, John the Baptist had been the first to suggest this marriage aspect and that Jesus was the bridegroom. He referred to Christ as the bridegroom. Now, it's recorded by the Apostle John in chapter 3, verse 27, recording the words of John the Baptist. Always keep the two straight here. And the Apostle wrote that John the Baptist said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ or Messiah, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, now that's John the Baptist, he is the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Now Christ further enforced this concept when he spoke to his disciples of his imminent death and his departure. Record in Luke chapter 5 and verse 35, he said, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away, referring to himself, from them, and they sh they shall then shall they fast in those days. Interestingly, there is something missing in this parable as you read it over. The bride is not mentioned at all. In fact, she's glaringly omitted. You see, it wasn't until after the church began that Paul revealed a mystery. The son's bride is the church. The bride is the corporate body of church-age believers. That is, all those people who received Jesus Christ as their Savior from Acts chapter 2 until the catching up or the rapture of the church to join her bridegroom and the wedding will commence. Now, following Jewish marriage customs of that day, we are informed that the bride is betrothed to the groom who has redeemed her at a great price. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul tells us, For ye, ye the bride, are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We then read, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, purchased his bride according to 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Recognizing that and the aspect of the bride and her absence from this parable, we know this is a parable for Israel, not for the church. So let's summarize the meaning of the significant details of our parable that we have learned thus far. The father king represents God the father. The bridegroom, son, represents the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. A marriage is to take place. Servants were sent by the king host to come and bring the guests, and we learn the guests refused to come. Matthew now introduces the witnesses that are found throughout history. They are the servants sent from God the Father to bring the guests to the wedding. The essential detail points out that the wedding guests who were bidden to the wedding and they would not come, verse 3. The guests are the people of Israel and their leaders who were bidden and rejected the invitation all through history. From cultural studies, we know that the Father as host often would give successive invitations to the wedding. In other words, all through history, the invitation had continued to be given out for the people to come to the wedding. We read next in verse 4. Again, he sent forth other servants, not that first bunch, but other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready now. Come to the marriage. 
These other guests, other servants, were men throughout history that God sent out. And once again, the invitation was rejected. The invitation rejected. Tell them which are bidden. God was calling out, bidding them to come to him. Now when Christ was present, the marriage could become, the feast could begin, they rejected it. Now the grammar of this text makes it clear that their rejection was not a polite refusal owing to other obligations. For Matthew stresses that when the guests were repeatedly bidden to come, they refused. Now this is indicated by the use of a negative imperfect. That means the writer is emphasizing an ongoing, stubborn refusal to come to the wedding. You see, for some, the wedding simply was not an important priority. Look at verse 5. But they made light of it, or paid no attention to it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. But there was another group that was openly hostile toward the father. And they demonstrated their antagonism by treating his servants spitefully, and in some cases, even killing them. Look at verse 6. And the remnant, in other words, the rest of the group, took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Regardless of their reasons, both were equally guilty of rejecting the father's invitation. As a consequence, the father king, notice what he does. He sends armies to them. We read, verse 7, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and their cities. That's really significant if you think about it. You see, the person inviting the guests was not only a father of a bridegroom, but he was the king. And he had armies. And he sent out his armies to destroy those who he calls murderers. And he destroyed their cities. This invitation went out throughout the kingdom. And those who slew the servants, God brought vengeance on for them. Now, the father still responds. He turns to the servants and he sends them to invite those in the highways. Now, this is going to be a general invitation. If we look at verse uh, 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. They weren't worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall see, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found. Now notice very carefully, verse 10, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Notice, the only requirement for admittance to the wedding was to accept the invitation. The previous life of each invited guest was irrelevant, for the invitation was offered to both good or bad and good. And that brings up a key point. He said bad first. Matthew is emphasizing, and the Lord was emphasizing through this parable, that even the bad were invited to this wedding. This wasn't exclusive just for an elite group, a chosen elect group. It is for the bad and the good. In verse 11 now, we find that the king comes in to welcome his guests who responded to his invitation. And according to the custom of the time, as we've learned earlier, the host provided wedding garments for each of his guests. They didn't have to worry if they were dressed appropriately or had clothing to wear to the wedding. He provided the festival garments. But upon seeing a man who was not clothed in the furnished wedding garments, the king graciously asks for an explanation. When the king, verse 11, came in and saw the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding gift garment, and he said unto him, Friend, how canst thou in hither not having a wedding garment? 
And the man's response, he was speechless. He had no excuse. The father had graciously provided the garments free of charge. The man simply did not want to wear them. He had tried to come in. He wanted the food. He wanted all the goodies. But he didn't try to follow and wear the garments given. Because the man was unfit for the wedding and had refused to accept the garments provided, the king had him bound and cast into outer darkness, according to verse 13. Having considered all these details, we're now ready to determine the central truth. The main participants, again, are the father king, who offers the invitation to the wedding and the invited guests who either reject or accept his invitation. Throughout Israel's history as a nation, God the Father and their king had promised to bless Israel and make her an integral part of his kingdom. If she would love, obey, and serve him, he repeatedly invited her to come to him through his servant messengers, Moses and the prophets. Over and over again, Israel disregarded and rejected God's offer. They didn't listen to the messengers, to the warning of the messengers, and in fact, many were stoned and killed. This grieved the heart of God the Father, their loving Father King, and they ultimately rejected the Son that he sent. Jesus Christ expressed his and his Father's grief at their rejection. They weren't just wrathful and vengeful because they're mad. No, their emotion was a grief at the rejection. And our Lord cries out in Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Notice the exclamation point at the end of that verse. This is a, a, a tiny reflection of the power of this statement of the crying, the weeping, as Christ proclaimed the Father and his grief over Israel. The writer to the Hebrews graphically described the suffering of God's servants in chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. He writes, They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves of the earth. I'd like to summarize this now. Again, we're repeating the details because they're so crucial to understand. The Father King represents God the Father. The bridegroom's son represents the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. The guests represent the people of Israel, including their leaders. The servants sent to invite, invite the guests represent Moses and the prophets and ultimately Jesus Christ himself. The central or main truth is Israel's repeated rejection of God the Father and the kingdom that was to be ruled by his son. By following the simple rules for interpreting a parable, we have been able to determine the central truth of the parable of the marriage feast. Notice the emphasis of this parable is the rejection of the Father and his offer of a kingdom. The emphasis is not on God the Son, for the Son in the parable is not actively involved in the story. Now, I'm not diminishing the importance of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that God first sent his son to represent his person, to function as a prophet, and to redeem humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But on that Palm Sunday, he was the finest and final witness of the prosecution. 
we also know that Jesus Christ will be the authorized ruler of God's earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. And he will rule with the Father for eternity in the new heaven and new earth. However, the point of Jesus' parable was Israel's rejection of God the Father and his gracious invitations to participate in his kingdom. We must realize that this parable was given to the nation and people of Israel, and God the Father is the principal figure in it. When the nation of Israel's spiritual leaders rejected Moses, rejected the prophets, rejected John the Baptist, and even God's Son, they were actually rejecting God the Father and the life in his kingdom. These are the many witnesses, all the servants, all the prophets who testify to Israel's rejection of God and the kingdom ruled by his son. The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1 verse 11, He came unto his own and his own received him not. See, they wouldn't come. They didn't want him. And again in chapter 5 of John verse 40, And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. Both of these verses make it clear that the refusal was their own choice. The consequences of their rejection would be dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the earth and the temple's destruction in 70 AD, as we'll see when we study the judgment in our next class. God's gracious invitation will be once again reissued to Israel during the tribulation. For our God is a gracious and merciful God. As we look into the Olivet Discourse in our next session, we'll be given an overview of what was and is in store for God's special nation, Israel. Now I've spent considerable time on this introduction to the Olivet Discourse because I see significant parallels between Israel's spiritual life and the world we live in. Like many today, churches and individuals are ignoring the Lord. They are just too busy. Most in Israel desired only the things of this world, not the things of God. Oh, they wanted freedom, in their case, from the Roman domination, but no obligations to God. They played at religion while their spiritual leaders ignored the scriptures and failed to teach them. They sought notoriety, influence, popularity, but without responsibility. When spiritual truth conflicted with their worldly desires, they compromised. They failed to understand and apply scriptures to their lives, substituting human logic for God's revealed will. Remember, however, that their failing did open the door to the church age. Matthew 21:43 says to us, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, speaking of those people of that day, and given to a nation or people, bringing the fruits thereof. That was the beginning of the church age, starting in Acts chapter 2. But God is not done with Israel. They have been dispersed, yes, but he will call them back, and the events of the tribulation will turn them back to him and will be his final invitation to those, and individual Jewish people will receive him as their Savior. Even in the church age, Jewish people can receive Jesus as their Savior. God didn't close the door on individuals, we are talking is dealing with the nation of Israel. A.W. Tozer once said that he believed that if the Holy Spirit should leave the churches of his day, 90% of them would never notice. I think it's worse than even today. Scripture in its entirety is not being taught in most churches. Prophecy especially is being neglected, and very few churches host prophecy conferences anymore. At the Lord's table on Sundays, the words, till he comes, a key part of it, which is a clear allusion to the rapture, are no longer mentioned at the Lord's table. And people aren't encouraged to search their hearts before participating in it. 
Now here's sort of an assignment for you. Next time your church observes the Lord's table, listen carefully to see if you hear any allusions to or reference made to the rapture or till he comes, because that's part of the Lord's table. If there are no references to it, maybe you need to speak to your leaders. Biblical doctrine is not being taught today. Instead, the philosophies of men are mingled with Bible doctrines creating false teachings, such as New Calvinism. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, in other words, pleasing them. Seminars on music, finance, health may be helpful, but they often replace true Bible study. Sunday services are supposedly perked up by making them contemporary and relevant, but keep the sermons short. They create a quasi-religious fellowship that employs salesmanship methods that are mistaken for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Pastors and teachers please their hearers with relevant messages and lessons that focus on temporal things, or at best, good motivational thoughts, rather than the eternal truths of Scripture that can be applied to life, certainly not only now, but in our life and eternity. Hymns are no longer chosen for their biblical truth, but according to the likes and dislikes of the music tastes of the congregation. Even if traditional hymns are sung, little discernment is exercised in choosing them, for their lyrics often promote replacement theology with terms like Zion, the church being the apple of God's eye, or the church-age believers are the chosen people. We must avoid becoming sloppy in our terminology. For example, when somebody receives Christ as Savior, I often hear this. Someone came into the kingdom today. Oh, really? Hmm, I thought the kingdom was still future. Or I hear, Christ is our king. But the Bible tells us that right now, Jesus Christ is our high priest in heaven interceding for us today. Yes, he will be king over Israel and the entire earth during the future millennium. But remember that in the millennium, you are his bride you will be alongside of him ruling as his bride. The book of Matthew clearly reminds us that people respond and follow their spiritual leaders. This is a heavy burden for pastors and church leaders today, but should also be to an encouragement to those who are led by the Holy Spirit. I close with Paul's warnings to the Ephesians, recorded by Luke. For I have not shunned to declare unto you the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's Acts 20, 27, 28. Please join us at our next class. Until we meet here again or in the air, may the Lord bless you mightily. I've just completed uh, taping a, another segment that we're now putting on our internet channel. And that segment is a study on how to study parables. Uh, we continue to try to expand the video offerings to you. In addition to this series on the Olivet Discourse, we're now adding shorter segments on how to study specific elements of the scripture, such as parables. We'll be doing how to study a prophecy in the near future, how to just study a Bible passage, and how to put together uh, a, a short message so it would help give you some of the skills that can help better understand our Lord's Word. Uh, I truly, truly enjoy doing these video classes. I enjoy producing them. I do the editing uh, of them and the graphics, but I also enjoy very much the teaching of them. I would hope that you would join us again on April 26th when we will webcast another lesson in this series on the book of Matthew. Please remember, all of our classes are available 24-7 on demand at either our website, 
That's www.congdenministries.org or www.sundaystreams.com forward slash go forward slash CMI. And of course, on our Roco television channel. Now, I'm excited we have talked about expanding our ministry to video, but now we're going to expand it another way. Beginning next week, all video and new audio next month, excuse me, all video and new audio broadcasts will be available on Sermon Audio. Many of you requested this. You like the audio so you can listen to it in your car or as you're driving along or at home and doing projects. So we will be putting audio broadcasts on as well as our video broadcast. This also opens the door to those of you with Apple TV will be able to watch our video broadcasts. We believe this will enable many to hear of my audio teachings from various Bible conferences that I've taught over the last several years. We will be putting these on as soon as we can logistically process them and offer them to you. Now, in the previous lessons, we've suggested you email questions and we would do a video answering your questions. Well, we found something out by people writing in emails. Many people watch our program maybe once, twice, three times. As they watch it, they find that their questions were answered, so they didn't have to write them into us. For other people, they said, well, you know, I've just been so into it, I just, I didn't think to write, or I'm not good at emails. We understand that. For those of you now who would like to submit a question, though, about something I've taught this evening, you can email that to me at questions at congdenministries.org. That's questions at congdenministries.org. I will personally respond to your questions as soon as possible by sending back an email to you. Perhaps at some time we'll gather up all those emails and we'll publish them on our website. So please also be sure to check our website for updates on new programs being offered. We intend to do additional series uh, now that the experience level of using the equipment is all kind of coming together we're able to produce these quicker we hope to get more on in the very near future again we thank you for praying for our ministry and our webcasts i mean this very sincerely without your prayers and the lord's answering them we could not bring these to you we also want to thank those of you who have helped support us financially to produce these programs. As I said, the costs are substantial on a monthly basis, and now going to Sermon Audio adds additional cost. And several responded last month and have covered last month's broadcast costs for us. Our monthly cost for the Internet and the services that broadcast our programs is a significant added expense to our ministry. So I would ask that you prayerfully consider if you might want to be able to offer gifts to help us with our ministry in this expanded ministry. If you would like to donate to help these broadcasts, go to our website and click on the Donate button. Again, we thank you for your help, for your encouragement, and your prayers. We thank you for telling friends about our programs and your churches so that more people can see it. We don't advertise. We don't pay for advertisement. And we merely publish what we're doing on our website through our newsletter and word of mouth. So tell your friends if you think these would be useful to them. And uh, we would find an encouragement to see uh, that you spreading the word, if you will, about our broadcasts. Very interesting, we receive statistics each month of viewership. Now, they don't give me your name, don't worry, or your, your emails. But they do tell us what state we have viewers in, how many times viewers come in, how many times that viewer may watch it, or how long they spend there. And interestingly, we now basically have viewers in every state of the United States. But in addition, we have some 12 to 14 countries that have viewers watching our broadcast from as far away as Mongolia, Australia, uh, Nepal, Russia, and Europe. So we are excited to see how this ministry is expanding and we truly are expanding it so it truly is the Congdon Ministries International. Again, that is answered to your prayers, our prayers, as the Lord has blessed us in this way. Please join us again next time. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I'll see you either here 
or in the air. Yeshua returns to Israel. 